All right, well, welcome everyone to this week's um, colloquium. Um, I'm really honored to uh, be able to um, introduce um, Margot Bagley to you. Um, I'm going to read a bit of her bio and then give a little more personal um, introduction. Um, but Margot comes, from, comes to us from uh, Emory University of Law, uh, where she joined the faculty there um, in 2016 after um, quite a while at the University of Virginia uh, School of Law. Um, she serves on a lots of different um, expert groups, um, the National Academies Committee on Advancing Commercialization from federal laboratories, and has previously served on the National Academies Committee on University Management of Intellectual Property. Um, she's also an expert technical advisor to the African Union in several world intellectual property organizations, which is um, called WIPO, um, looking at matters um, around IP, and is also the friend of the chair in the WIPO Intergovernmental Committee on Intellectual Property and Genetic Resources, Traditional Knowledge and Folklore. She served as a consultant to the UN Food and Agricultural Organization, um, and is also a member of the Convention on Biological Diversity's Ad Hoc Technical Expert Group um, on digital sequence information on genetic resources for the CBD and Nagoya protocol. On a more personal level, um, I was first acquainted with, with Margot back, um, I went and looked, Margot, in 2013, yeah. um, when I was at the Wilson Center and the Smithsonian had come over and visited with us, sort of freaking out about <laughs> their collections that are in their museums and wondering if those collections would now all of a sudden have to um, abide by this thing called the Nagoya Protocol, which was coming into force. Um, and like we typically did at the Wilson Center, we said, well, that's interesting, but actually what we'd really want you to look at is this question of synthetic biology and digital sequences and how that might um, be affected by the Nagoya Protocol. So we looked out into the ethos and there were really only a handful of people at the time looking at these issues and one of those um, was Margot. And we reached out to her and Artie Ray from Duke University um, to see if they would be interested in, in looking at this and writing a report for us. Um, so they wrote a couple of those. And through that, over time, Margot and I have become really good friends and have worked on projects together. And so I'm really honored and, and grateful that she's here to talk to you um, and talk to us about these issues, which are really, um, I find them really interesting. They're really prevalent and they are ripe for all sorts of issues that the GES Center looks at. Um, so with that, I'll turn it over to you, Margo. Thanks so much, Todd. Thanks so much for the invitation and for that really kind introduction. And yeah, it's it's really been great getting to know Todd over the years. And we we keep running into each other on these issues and these projects. I love working with Todd. Um, and it's great to be here with you all today. So um, as usual, I have too many slides. And so I'm going to try to go through them quickly um, so that there's time for Q&A because, as I understand it, this is not a topic that you all may have had a lot of um, background on, so I want to be sure to get questions. So my title, What's Yours is Mine and What's Mine is Mine, Digital Sequence Information Patents and Benefit Sharing Obligations. What I'd like to do over the next few moments is give you an introduction to biopiracy, which is um, a topic where much of this started, in a sense, the CBD and the Goya Protocol, 
then digital sequence information or what I will now call DSI and genetic resource issues, um, DSI and the plant treaty issues, and then where we are in terms of the state of negotiations on the CBD and Nagoya and DSI with some concluding thoughts. So biopiracy, um, this term refers to when folks um, go perhaps to a developing country that has a lot of biodiversity, talk to indigenous people and local community members about the plants and other genetic resources in the area, identify some that may have some biological activity, um, develop very lucrative and profitable products um, from that knowledge and those genetic resources, but then don't necessarily share uh, the benefits with the people that they got the information from or the country from which they got the resources. And many times these inventions are patented, and so there's this patent component. Um, and engaging in this kind of research, ethnobiological research, where you're um, uh, including information that you're getting from people on the ground, um, can be very helpful in reducing the amount of research that you have to do to find drug compounds, um, and not surprisingly, has been used quite a bit. I have an example here, uh, the development of a class of drugs, ACE inhibitors, which are helpful in the treatment and control of hypertension or high blood pressure, um, developed from the venom of a Brazilian pit viper. And yet these drugs or the money that is developed from these drugs, which are patented, um, very little of that went back to Brazil, the country of origin. And so these kinds of concerns about the fact that folks are making a lot of money, they're not sharing it with the countries of origin or with the indigenous people and local communities, led to the Convention on Biological Diversity, which um, was has been enforced since 93. It has 196 parties. Unfortunately, the U.S. is not one. We signed, but we never ratified it. That's a whole other story. Uh, but it has these three principles that states have control over the resources within their borders. They should endeavor to make them available, access available, but it should be on mutually agreed terms and their terms, and there should be the sharing of benefits um, from the use of those genetic resources. The CBD didn't really say how to do this access and benefit sharing, and that led to the need for the Nagoya Protocol to the Convention on Biological Diversity, which provides a framework for how to do access and benefit sharing. It still leaves a lot of flexibility for governments and how they're going to implement it, but it does have some key features. Um, countries don't have to require that users get prior informed consent, but if they do, they need to comply with the Nagoya Protocol provisions. Um, it requires countries to designate a national focal point, someone that a researcher can go to and find out what are the rules in the particular country, how do I go about accessing genetic resources and, and traditional knowledge, and compliance checkpoints. If someone is making a use of a genetic resource, um, perhaps filing a patent application, that could be a compliance checkpoint to make sure that they have complied with the Nagoya Protocol laws in that particular country or in other member countries, because it does also obligate parties to cooperate in cases of alleged violation of access and benefit sharing requirements. And it requires that um, utilization benefits be shared in a fair and equitable way. I've got here a list of some of the kinds of benefits that can be shared. The Nagoya protocol specifies that they can be monetary 
or non-monetary. And non-monetary benefits can actually be very valuable. But of course, there's a need for monetary benefits as well. And I'll talk about that a little later. So where does digital sequence information come into all of this? Um, it comes in as a result of the fact that lots of uh, genetic resources um, are being turned into um, genetic information or at least the genetic information from those genetic resources is being sequenced, it's being uploaded to databases, it's gotten much cheaper and much faster. And so that's led to what has been called the dematerialization of genetic resources. Of course, there are still tangible material genetic resources, but to get the value from them, you may not have to access the tangible material in some cases. Um, and there's this growing concern that if folks can get what they need from the data that may be in a publicly accessible database, that there will not be as much sharing of benefits, monetary or non-monetary, with the countries of origin of that genetic information that came ultimately from some genetic resources. And we are seeing vast amounts of sequence data being stored in and added to publicly accessible databases all the time. This is from GenBank which is a major um, database here in the United States, just showing the dramatic increase. Um, what do we mean when we're talking about DSI? Um, there are, this is a point on which there is not agreement. Uh, Todd mentioned that I served on the ad hoc technical expert group and we couldn't agree on much of anything except that DSI probably was not the right term, but it's continued to be used as a placeholder until folks come up with a better term. So I've got here examples of some of the things that our ad hoc technical expert group came up with that could possibly uh, be comprised within the term DSI, and then other terms that could be used, genetic information, natural information, genetic sequence data, um, digital sequence data. We're all talking about the same kinds of things here. Depending on who you are, you might want it to be more narrow in terms of the subject matter it covers or more broad. And this digital sequence information has led to a concern about digital biopiracy. So whereas uh, traditional biopiracy dealt with the taking of tangible material, here, um, if the DNA of an organism is sequenced, it's uploaded to the internet as information, um, transferred to a synthesizer, uh, you can make copies, you can use this information in all kinds of ways, again, without sharing benefits with the country of origin. Um, Todd and I were on a team that did a study for the Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN, the Plant Treaty, which I'll say more about in a moment. And I have a quote here from one of the researchers that we interviewed talking about this phenomenon. He's like, you know, before we had to ask for material if we wanted to repeat work that someone else had done, um, standardize some very complex construct, but it's easy to do now with CRISPR. Um, and if we want to do something and not say anything to anybody, um, I can just use the data that was published to reproduce it myself. I can send it off to the foundry, the company will do it for you. It's very cheap, very easy. And this really exemplifies uh, the concerns that some countries have about this bypassing of the Nagoya Protocol. If the objective or key objective is a fair and equitable sharing of benefits arising from the utilization of genetic resources, then we're not necessarily going to get uh, that kind of benefit sharing. Um, I've got an example here. This is a, um, one that's been used a fair amount, but um, 
researchers modifying yeast by inserting genes from a variety of different organisms to um, get the yeast to produce morphine precursors. Um, and you can do this when you have access to this data, um, and you don't necessarily need access to the tangible material. Another concern, however, is that if countries are being bypassed in the access and benefit sharing um, in, in terms of not receiving benefits, then they may inhibit access to their biodiversity. And this is something we saw Indonesia do in 2014 with a moratorium on foreign biodiversity research. And the real problem there is that there's still vast amounts of biodiversity that have not been tested for bioactivity. There more things that could develop wonderful cures and drugs that we don't know about yet. Um, and so we don't want countries to really limit access. We want to be able to access uh, these plants, these microorganisms, these animals. Um, but there is this legitimate concern about bypassing the national ABS systems and obligations. So this concern about digital biopiracy and digital sequence information is being discussed um, and is creating controversy in a number of different international fora. I have a number listed here. Um, the ones that I'm focusing on in this talk uh, are the Convention on Biological Diversity and the Nagoya Protocol. And I'm going to mention, as I've already mentioned, the Food and Agriculture Organization's International Treaty on Plant Genetic Resources for Food and Agriculture. So this treaty, which has this really long acronym, um, people tend to call it the seed treaty or the plant treaty or just the treaty. I think I generally refer to it as a plant treaty. But it carves out subject matter from the CBD and Nagoya Protocol, which deal, those treaties deal with all genetic resources. This says, well, we're going to take 64 plants that are used for food and agriculture, um, comprising 80% of human consumption, and put those in a multilateral system. The CBD Nagoya Protocol system is a bilateral system. If you want to use a genetic resource from Mozambique, you should go to the Mozambican government and negotiate mutually agreed terms for accessing and benefit sharing. But if you want to use material from one of these 64 plants on the treaty list, it's Annex, um, you can just go to one of the repositories where the germplasm is, get it, you would sign a standard material transfer agreement, no negotiation of terms. Um, and so it's supposed to really facilitate in relation to these food crops, um, making sure that people have access to it while also providing for benefit sharing because you're going to contribute a set amount of profits for commercialization that you do um, of material that comes from the multilateral system. But DSI can also create a problem here. So the standard material transfer agreement requires sharing of benefits. If you're going to commercialize a product, not make it available without restriction, you have to pay a fixed percentage. If you can access the sequence information and don't need the tangible material, then again, you're not going to be using this uh, material transfer agreement and you're not going to be sharing benefits. Um, an example of how this can happen, this is from 
This slide is, is from three published papers. We've got Gal who found that to, uh, this tobacco gene is involved in disease resistance. Liu searched for a similar gene in rice using BLAST, which is GenBank's alignment search tool, and found this gene that increases uh, rice uh, susceptibility to a particular type of disease, which also happens to be called BLAST, rice BLAST. Um, and then Fungen used CRISPR to mutate that gene to result in increased resistance to um, that particular disease. And that's all using um, publicly accessible um, information in GenBank um, to find um, this improvement for rice crops. So um, where do patents come in to all of this? Well, patents are a tool um, or tools that governments use to get inventors to disclose their information. There's this quid pro quo that in exchange for disclosing an invention um, that's new and useful and non-obvious, and you give us an enabling disclosure how to make and use it, the government's going to give you the right to exclude everyone else from making, using, selling, offering to sell, or importing that invention into the country for a term of years, generally 20 years from the filing date of the patent. Patent rights are territorial. There is no global patent. You need to file for protection in all of the countries where you seek to have protection. Um, but it's a very powerful right. And so we see generally inventions being protected where possible by patents because of this right to exclude others from the marketplace. Um, and synthetic biology is coming into play here. I already mentioned CRISPR, um, but patents are the primary form of intellectual property protection for synthetic biology and genome editing types of inventions. And we've been seeing an increase in patent applications being filed with various kinds of synthetic biology applications and certainly in relation to CRISPR. So uh, here's an example of DSI and the ABS bypass from the pharmaceutical arena. Um, Regeneron, a U.S. pharmaceutical company, developed a treatment for Ebola. Using a virus string, it reproduced by synthesis from um, an individual who had survived the 2014 Ebola outbreak in the country of Guinea. And the sequence uh, data was uploaded without restriction to GenBank by the German Nock Institute that was working, I presume, in conjunction with the Guinean government. And Nock requires recipients of physical samples of the virus to sign a material transfer agreement saying that they're going to negotiate benefit sharing with the government um, and here's a, a copy of that, and in paragraph two, it's like, you know, in the case of subsequent exploitation, suitable and adequate sharing of income must be negotiated by the recipient with the country concerned. However, when the Nock Institute uploaded the sequence information to GenBank, these conditions were not attached as well. The sequence information is available for anyone to use without restriction. And this treatment has already been patented in a number of countries. There are 100 pending patent applications worldwide. It's already attracted hundreds of millions of dollars in purchase commitments from the U.S. government for biodefense. And the price is likely to be well above what um, the vast majority of African Ebola victims and African governments are going to be able to pay. This is from Ed Hammond, who um, wrote an article about this. 
And that raises concerns that, okay, yes, we do want cures for Ebola, but if the people who actually need the cures aren't going to be able to afford them um, and would still die as a result, that's problematic. And without the sharing, that may lead countries to not share um, such virus data in the future. In fact, uh, a scenario like that led to um, a framework at the WHO, the World Health Organization, re uh, dealing with the pandemic, um, influenza preparedness. All right, um, so in the plant space, we are seeing increasing numbers of CRISPR plant patent applications being filed in relation to the main crops, um, lots of improvements, um, herbicide tolerance, virus resistance, pest resistance, all kinds of things. And I'm gonna speed up because I realize I'm, my time's getting away from me. But yeah, again, we're seeing patents being filed largely in the U.S., China coming up rapidly, other countries um, as well. And this concern about bypassing um, the ABS benefit sharing obligations of the Nagoya Protocol also apply to the plant treaty. Um, and in another way, so researchers can use and patent sequence information from the plant treaty's multilateral system in any kind of research. Um, without it being e easily monitored for benefit sharing obligations. So the carve out that the treaty creates from the CBD is just for uses of those plants for food and agriculture. But if you can then take the sequences from GenBank and use them um, in pharmaceutical development, for example, you then fall back under the CBD and Nagoya protocol and should engage in the bilateral benefit sharing, which is problematic here. So that's another concern. So what folks are talking about in these different bodies, um, one of the key issues is, is this digital sequence information even within the scope of these treaties, or do the treaties only relate to the tangible material? And there are two main views, not surprisingly. So industry and academia um, generally takes the view that not within the scope. Um, when you look at the language, genetic resources, the sequence information is not a genetic resource, and it's not utilization of genetic resources. It's outside of the scope of the, of the Nagoya Protocol. Or if we say that it results from utilization, then only non-monetary benefits should be required, no monetary benefits. And this is from a statement by a group of public and private sector organizations and institutions representing a broad range of stakeholders and pointing out how important it is for researchers to have unencumbered access to this sequence information. You don't want to put access um, restrictions on sequence information. It benefits society as a whole. Um, the rate of scientific um, advancement would be um, uh, retarded if we did not have access, unencumbered access to digital sequence information. Extensive tracking and tracing would be needed if it were even possible. And open sharing of this sequence information is a form of non-monetary benefit sharing because um, all countries benefit for it, from it. So this is where the title of my talk comes from. It's like what they're saying is what's yours is mine and what's mine is mine. I can use your resource sources, your digital sequence information, and not share any monetary benefits I make from them with you. And that's a problem, because while provider countries agree that, yes, everyone benefits from advances enabled by this open sharing, that should not preclude monetary benefit sharing, but especially when you think about the fact that patents are being obtained, large amounts of money are being made, 
Drugs are unaffordable in many cases. This is a problem. And an analogy I like to use is the fact that the public benefits from many patented technologies, but the patent holders are still invited, entitled to monetary benefits. My handy-dandy iPhone here is covered by thousands of patents, and each of those patent holders wants to get paid, and Apple does whatever negotiations it has to in order to be able to use that. Um, technology that's covered by those various patents. And so what the provider countries are saying here is the same thing applies. If you want to use our information, you should share benefits, monetary benefits. All right, so the provider view and the civil society view is that either genetic resources or utilization of gen genetic resources encompasses DSI so that, yes, DSI is within the scope of the negotiated protocol and therefore sub subject to benefit sharing. Um, I think saying that it's within genetic resources is problematic, and I hope that's not the approach that folks take. I think it's totally justifiable to say that DSI results from the utilization of genetic resources, which means to conduct research and development on the genetic and biochemical composition of, of these genetic resources. Um, so if it's within, if it comes from utilization, then um, purely non-monetary benefit sharing, these countries are saying, is not acceptable. Important consequences do flow, and I don't want to take too much time to go into that. The bottom line for what I'll say here is the second part of this slide. If we don't say that the definition of genetic resources includes DSI, but only that it results in utilization, then you don't have to get prior informed consent, which would be crazy and very difficult to do in order to use a sequence. But um, there would be benefit-sharing obligations, and I think that's a better, better view and that that could possibly be handled under some sort of global multilateral benefit sharing mechanism, as is provided for in the Nagoya Protocol Article 10, as opposed to the bilateral you negotiate with every country, which, again, for digital sequence information is not really workable. So Article 10 says that parties shall consider the need for and modalities of a global multilateral benefit sharing mechanism. That might be a way to address situations where it's not possible to grant or obtain prior informed consent. And that might involve some sort of fund that um, companies could put money into without having to negotiate particular um, utilizations of particular sequences. Um, I think it would also be important in that scenario to have non-commercial researchers be able to comply with their obligations through non-monetary benefits, things like capacity building, um, because we don't want to limit or inhibit purely academic research um, where money isn't being made from it. Um, I've not, there are these fairness and economic development concerns, which is why countries are saying it shouldn't only be um, non-monetary benefits. Um, stevia, which is a non-caloric sweetener, which is now being produced through synthetic biology, or at least the steviaglycosides are, Benefits are not going to the indigenous people who originally um, identified this sweetening um, capacity of stevia, um, nor the countries of Paraguay or Brazil. And monetary benefits can be important for conservation, making sure that we retain the biodiversity that we need around the globe. I was in Australia, and Todd and I were in Australia last year. Um, and I went to Uluru, the big mountain that you've probably seen in pictures, and I've got a picture up there. And the Anangu 
Indigenous people were driven away from there many years ago, and it resulted in the extinction of many species within this area because the Anangu had been doing controlled fires that would actually were actually beneficial. Some of the plants needed the heat in order to pop open and release their seeds, and they saw a significant reduction in the diversity of species and number of species in the park because of the people leaving. And if you don't have adequate incentives for indigenous peoples and local communities to um, maintain and conserve um, biological diversity, we lose it. It's not just that this stuff is growing wild and it's going to be there for us. Um, in many cases, it requires active conservation. So what's the state of negotiations? And this is where I'm going to end. Um, there is a meeting that's supposed to be coming up in October. Uh, Todd and I were talking about it. I think it's going to be moved. Uh, but every two years, the Conference of the Parties to the Convention on Biological Diversity serving as a meeting of the parties to the Nagoya Protocol, they meet last year, well, in 2018, it was in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, and uh, they commissioned these studies. I did one of the studies, the third one that's listed here, I was the lead author, looking at what provider countries are doing in their national laws to address benefit sharing from uses of digital sequence information. And um, our team, we found that 16 countries and one sub-national jurisdiction already have legislation or guidelines that are um, controlling or providing for restrictions on access to digital sequence information and benefit sharing, and a num another 18 are considering doing so. So conclusions, um, we have this wonderful benefit of low sequencing costs that is creating this challenge for the CPD, the Nagoya Protocol, the Plant Treaty, and possibly allowing bypassing of um, access and benefit sharing obligations and the leading to less need for accessing tangible materials. We're seeing lots of disagreements in these negotiating fora on what do we call this, what's the scope, um, what are we talking about in relation to benefits, and that's going to continue to be problematic until we can come to some sort of a consensus. And even if we come to a consensus at the international level, as I mentioned, there's still a lot of flexibility at the national level for countries to um, take differing approaches to access and benefit sharing obligations. Um, and I think something that would really be helpful in this space would be a global multilateral benefit sharing mechanism um, for um, digital sequence information for these um, uses of genetic information to still allow for benefit sharing and yet still allow free access. I think that could be a win-win. Will we get to that? I don't know. But at this point, I'm happy to take your um, questions. That was great, Margo. Thank you so much. Um, so just a reminder, if you have um, a question to click on the little hand there for the raise, raise your hand func uh, function, um, we already have a question in the chat box, so I'll read that one out first, um, and then we'll get the people who start raising their hands. Um, so this looks like a question about um, how traditional knowledge falls under these treaties. So the question is about maize and corn, which is used by the world, but not a penny came to Native Americans who created it. Mm -hmm. Is there a difference where Native or traditional knowledge is used versus no knowledge is utilized? So that's a really great question. Um, 
the Nagoya Protocol and the CBD do mention traditional knowledge, and they do specify that benefits should be shared for uses of traditional knowledge. However, as I mentioned, the United States is not a party to the CBD or the Nagoya Protocol, and so the United States doesn't require any benefits to be shared. Um, so that's, in, in relation to Native Americans, that's the short answer to that one. But other countries do require benefits to be shared for uses of traditional knowledge. Okay, and then another question in the chat um, says, you know, for benefit sharing, does that include cost? Um, and so the example they have here is, you know, one in a thousand becomes a home run, but the cost equals the thousands that did not become a home run. Um, do that is offset by the profits for the ones. So do those benefit sharings include the cost to the developer? Is I believe what the question is asking. Right, right. So, yeah. So, for example, um, in the plant treaty, I believe it requires something like 1.1% of net profits. So it's going to be after you subtracted your cost from that. And, and it's a negotiation, you know, to come up with, if in, in the Nagoya Protocol context, it's a negotiation that the parties have to agree to what's going to be fair. And, and that can be a problem. There can be overreach on the part of countries that overvalue um, the contribution that their particular genetic resources are making. In that case, the parties may not get to an agreement. Um, but yeah, um, that should be subtracted and you should be dealing with net profits and getting to some sort of a royalty or benefit sharing agreement. Okay, uh, we have a question from Joanna. You should be unmuted. Okay, thank you. Uh, thank you for this talk. It was really interesting. It's such a great topic. Um, you were saying towards the end of your talk that uh, a number of countries have already started thinking about or implementing uh, their own protocols for DSI. Mm -hmm. So if this is already available as a mechanism for countries to implement without this international component, why is it so important to update the Nagoya as a whole? Well, it's important to come to an agreement on Nagoya. The problem is the study that we did, because we interviewed lots of folks, we did a survey, we tried to get information from all CBD countries, so it, it was a lot. And what you see are different approaches in almost every country. And that ultimately becomes very difficult for researchers um, or anyone who wants to use the information. If you've got to figure out, well, you know, Brazil does it this way. Brazil has a completely different system than anyone else. And Brazil's system, actually, they modified it. They came up with a new law in 2015, put their system, which is, is in many ways, I think, for countries who want to do it, I think Brazil's provides a good model because you just go in and register. You don't have to get permission ahead of time. But there are certain activities that trigger the obligation to register, and then certain other activities that trigger an obligation to share benefits. And the user gets to choose monetary or non-monetary, and it specifies. So it's a really nice system that Brazil has set up. Most countries, again, we're dealing with um, the countries that are putting these, these restrictions in place are generally developing countries that are biodiverse. You're not seeing the wealthier, high-income countries 
putting these kinds of restrictions in place in relation to digital sequence information because, of course, they have strong industry lobbies saying we don't want any restrictions on, on information and it shouldn't even be within the scope of Nagoya. So the countries that are doing it, in many cases, don't have lots of resources and so they may be interpreting the legislation that they currently have to cover this and therefore um, putting provisions in contracts that they're negotiating saying, well, you can't publish the sequence information that you get from, if you um, sequence this tangible material that you're getting from us without coming back to us and if you're going to do something else. But they don't necessarily have a way to enforce um, or, or they don't necessarily have the tools to enforce. So the problem is having this patchwork of different approaches in different countries for subject matter. Um, again, you could be using sequences from lots of different organisms from lots of different countries. You don't want to have to negotiate with each one. It would be much better to have under Nagoya Protocol a global multilateral benefit sharing fund that we can agree it's whatever low percentage goes into that fund and you're done. Does that answer your question? It, it does, yeah. So what I'm hearing from you is that if DSI was updated and included in the Nagoya, that it would harmonize the regulations that are in place? Well, it could. It doesn't have to. <laughs> it doesn't have to. Okay. Because, again, you have to get parties to agree. So it's not that Nagoya is super harmonized as it is. It has a lot of fuzzy language. Um, <laughs> that allows countries to do things like this, okay? So, um, but I, I guess what I'm saying is if there could be agreement to a global multilateral benefit sharing under Nagoya, that would be huge and that would be helpful, okay? Because just thinking about trying to negotiate the bilateral negotiations for sequence information, to me, it just seems unworkable. And yet you don't want to bypass um, not getting... Um, benefits at all. So it's like, how can we make something that is workable? So would it be true harmonization? I doubt it. That would be lovely, but I'm not, um, I'm not really expecting that. Okay, thank you. Uh -huh. uh, we have a question from Zach. Fargo, um, it's a great talk. Um, really appropriate for the, for this, for the GS Center Colloquium. So uh, thanks for doing this. Um, I uh, just, I was curious, I'm not sure, I might have missed it, but one, one possible, I'm, I'm an economist who's looked a little bit at these, some of these patent issues that you were discussing, and um, one of the, one curious idea that I was wondering whether anybody had done was uh, countries who are, you know, who, who should, who should in principle benefit from this, um, from this patenting, whether there's any agreements for like um, license free free licenses for those companies, like or for those countries, so where the countries could either the re, either researchers in academia or or private industry in those countries or any citizen I guess of a country that was generating this digital sequence information for a patent, whether they could just freely license the the, the intellectual property that was generated as a result of that. Is there any is there any agreements to that effect, or has that been discussed? Not that I can think of. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a great idea, and, and it's something that could be done. Um, so, for example, under Brazil's old law, which was their 1999 law, if you 
didn't comply with their access and benefit sharing regime and used genetic resources from Brazil in coming up with some invention and got patents. That law gave the government a variety of penalties it could choose from. It could um, require you to give 20% of royalties. It could cancel your patent. Now, of course, this is only talking about the patent in Brazil. Um, or it could put it under some kind of a constructive trust or, or provide for non-exclusive licensing. Um, so, yes, that is something that absolutely could be done, but um, I'm not aware of any countries um, currently doing that, and I'm, I'm, I need to think about that. So something that's being discussed in WIPO, which is the World Intellectual Property Organization, and Todd had wanted me to talk about WIPO, but I just knew I wouldn't have time. Um, WIPO is trying to, there's a committee, that one with the long name that Todd mentioned, the Inter Intergovernmental Committee on Intellectual Property and Genetic Resources, Traditional Knowledge and Folklore, where they're looking at, in the patent space, requiring applicants to disclose the origin of genetic resources that they use in patent applications, which would arguably allow countries to figure out where their genetic resources are ending up in patents. Um, that's something that's making some progress. Um, the question of digital sequence information, however, is not really being discussed. That's kind of been shelved for the moment, not to say it won't come back in the next meeting, but people realize that would be problematic and that that's probably not the best way to go um, for sequence information. Um, you could have, well, yeah. Um, but they're also looking at um, developing new kinds of IP rights for traditional knowledge and traditional cultural expressions there. But, um, and on the patent side relating to the disclosure of origin, that what you said made me think of that because one of the concerns that they had or something that some countries have been pushing for is, well, if you don't share benefits, um, then the treaty should, re should allow countries to revoke patents. And of course, um, on the other side, you've got high-income countries and pharmaceutical companies and other kinds of industries saying, no, 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 patent revocation should not be allowed for a violation of access and benefit sharing rules or um, failure to disclose origin. Um, so there are other kinds of things that you could think about, though. You could think about these kinds of licenses that, that you mentioned um, as being a potential remedy or as providing a kind of um, benefit, a monetary benefit, um, or a non-monetary benefit, because there's no guarantee that money's going to come from that, that could be used to comply with Nagoya obligations. So, yeah, I think it's it's an interesting idea, but not one that I've seen um, really in place anywhere, or, or even being meaningfully discussed. Thank you. All right, I'm going to read a, um, a couple of questions from the chat, and then I'll um, bring it back to the um, people who's raised their hand. So this first one is a timely one, and then I'll read a second one. So first one is, is from Anna Stepanova. Um, since COVID-19 originated in China, does it mean that China owns the virus and thus is entitled to benefits from the treatments developed by other countries to combat COVID-19? And then a second... 
Yeah. Oh, go ahead. And then a second question is one I think we dealt with years ago when we first reached out to you, which is how do we deal with retroactivity? There was a lot of sequence data in databases deposited prior to 2014. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So with COVID-19, um, Chinese researchers almost immediately made the sequence information publicly available because they wanted folks to try to find um, cures or vaccine, et cetera. Um, it, and as I said, there is not agreement at this point on whether um, sequence information is within the scope of the Nagoya Protocol and therefore subject to access and benefit sharing. There's also not agreement on whether pathogens um, should be considered to be within the scope of these agreements. It's like, well, we think of pathogens as bad, so why would we talk about benefit sharing from pathogens? So that's another question as well. Um, one can make arguments on either side for that. So, um, yeah, it's it's an open question. If China had wanted to assert rights, um, China could, but Again, it would only relate to China because other countries wouldn't necessarily have to comply. At this point, it's more of a moral obligation. And even though Nagoya says countries are supposed to cooperate for violations, if something is not clearly a violation because the parties haven't agreed that that subject matter actually comes within the scope of the Nagoya Protocol, then countries could say, no, no, um, we don't, no, you don't, you don't have any right over that. So. It's, it's one of those gray areas. Another gray area is the retroactivity question. And yes, Todd, we did look at this um, in the reports that um, Artie and I um, did for the first one that Artie and I did for the Wilson Center. Um, this issue of temporal scope, do these benefit sharing obligations only apply to genetic resources accessed after the entry into force of the Nagoya Protocol in 2014? And as the questioner mentioned, there have been vast amounts of genetic resources that have been accessed and, and sequences before that. Um, does it only apply to resources accessed after the CBD or at any time? And there are different views on that as well. Um, the one, one view is that if what we're talking about is utilization of genetic resources, then at any time that you're utilizing it, that creates the obligation. So it may have been accessed a long time ago, but you're making a new utilization now. And Nagoya applies, requires that benefits be shared from the utilization of genetic resources. But I must say that if you're a researcher in the EU, the EU has implemented Nagoya, the Nagoya Protocol. They have a regulation that applies across all EU countries, and it specifically says that it only applies to genetic resources accessed after the coming into force of the protocol, and it does not apply to sequence information. So what we have, and are going to continue to have for a while at least, are differing approaches in different countries and regions. Uh, we have a question from Dalton, go ahead. Hi there, Professor Bagley, thank you so much for this talk. Um, my name is Dalton George, I'm a PhD student um, in the Forestry and Environmental Resources Department. And I was wondering, um, from your experiences on the international stage as a part of these negoci negotiations, 
how do the conversations around benefit sharing that you've been that you've been um, telling us about today in your presentation relate and connect with conversations around building research capacity in lower income nations? Great question. Um, there, they they do um, very much include capacity building. Capacity building, technical assistance are very important points in these negotiations um, because. As I mentioned, one of the points that industry and academia has been making is that DSI benefits everyone. Um, every country is free to use it. But of course, every country is not positioned to take advantage of that DSI in the same way. They don't necessarily have the capacity. They don't necessarily have the researchers who are trained or the facilities or the equipment to make use of sequence information in the same way. And so that does go to capacity. So there is a need and a recognition um, of a need for more capacity building as non-monetary benefit sharing. Um, and folks definitely want that. Um, it's just there's a desire for monetary benefit sharing as well. But yes, um, I, I remember, I'll never forget at um, Todd when we were in Pyeongchang, South Korea, at the CBD meeting when the Nagori Protocol first went into effect in 2014. And I was in a side event, and there was a woman, I think she was from Ecuador. And it was so poignant. She said, you know, just build us a school. We would love for you to build us a school. Not asking for a lot of money, but something that will help the people to help themselves. So, yeah, capacity building, really important. And could I just ask a really quick follow-up? Are there any discussions around how these monetary benefits might be, I don't know, structured to go directly towards capacity building um, as opposed to, um, you know, being put towards other uses? Right. And that is a concern that if it's going to the government and the government has lots of needs, that the money isn't necessarily going to get to where it's supposed to go. Um, that is something that can be negotiated in contract. Mm -hmm. So in these mutually agreed terms, you can specify that it's supposed to go to build this kind of facility and buy this kind of equipment. I mean, if you mm -hmm. want to get that far into the weeds, right. yeah, you can do that. Right. Thank you so much. Sure. All right, I have a question from the, a really interesting question, at least I think, from the chat. Um, so it's, how do these treaties deal with invasive or non-native species in terms of benefit sharing? What country or people would you share the benefits with? Right, so great, great question. There's another um, study that I'm doing for the CBD Secretariat right now. It went out for peer review, and in a few days I'm going to get back pages and pages of comments. There were 27 different submissions on it. So this study deals with that Article 10 of the Nagoya Protocol. Um, I was commissioned to write a study on scenarios where um, that kind of mechanism might be needed. And, of course, one of the ones that I and my co-author, Fred Perrin Welch, who's awesome, um, wrote about is DSI. But we also looked at situations where there are these species that are spread, ac spread across boundaries um, or indigenous peoples who live across boundaries who do not recognize geopolitical boundaries. What do you do in those cases? Those are cases where it would make sense to have a global multilateral benefit sharing mechanism. Now, the Nagoya Protocol does have an Article 10. It does specifically mention transboundary um, situations and that countries should try to work together, and some do. 
for example, South Africa, um, there was recently, after 10 years, an agreement regarding rooibos tea. Some of you may have drunk rooibos tea, which is a lovely tea, um, that folks, companies have been making money off for years. And it was originally, its uses were originally identified by the San and Khoi people of South Africa, Namibia, Botswana. They're spread across a number of countries in South Africa. And this agreement that the South African Department of Environmental Affairs negotiated um, does provide four benefits to go to the San and Khoi in Namibia, I think in Botswana as well. So, and South Africa has a law relating to traditional knowledge that says basically that benefits should be shared with the groups in other countries and that the countries should try to work it out. So. There's a possibility of the countries working it out themselves, which is more likely if it's next door neighbors and maybe just two of them. It gets harder when you have more countries across which it's dispersed. Um, and I've got lots of examples um, in the study that, that again, I just did, um, and, and where there are lots of different people groups um, involved who have information about the uses of that resource. So. All right, I'm gonna wait for some more hands raised, but in the meantime, I'm gonna ask you maybe two questions that are probably impossible to answer. Yeah. Uh, the one is, I mean, you mentioned the various different treaties and organizations that are all grappling with this question. And so I'm curious of what do you think the possibility of aligning all of those? So I'm interested in like, if WIPO comes up with one interpretation and Nagoya comes up with another, and WHO comes up with another, how, is there a hierarchy of <laughs> which treaty you go to first and, and second and third and so forth? Yeah, so that is a great question that I cannot answer. Um, <laughs> what I will say is the, all of the ones that we're talking about are UN organizations. So WIPO is a UN organization that is charged with promoting IP protection around the world, the food and agriculture is a UN organization, as is the CBD. Um, so I'm not aware of any hierarchy within the ranks of these various um, organizations. Um, and they don't necessarily take account of what the other has done. I think the CBD works better with the FAO than WIPO works with either of those. And part of the problem is different countries are members of different treaties, okay? And, and even, and I, and I say WIPO, but it's, it's the WIPO treaties. Um, so the pro, one of the problems that we're running into at WIPO is folks want to, take want to take wording from the Nagoya Protocol to use in some of the treaties that we're negotiating. And some countries are like, uh-uh, no, we're not party to Nagoya um, because even there are some countries that are party to the CBD who have not um, adopted the Nagoya Protocol yet. Um, and so they're like, no, we're not party to Nagoya. And so, no, you can't bring that here, basically. So if we had um, the same members across all of these different treaties, maybe because then they would have all agreed, they would have agreed to these things in other four. But if, if you have a country that hasn't agreed to something that's been agreed in Nagoya, then they're not necessarily going to agree to it now in WIPO. Make sense? Yes, unfortunately it makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, 
I don't see any other hands. Um, so unless I see one really quickly, um, I want to thank you again, Margo, for, for doing this. Um, so unfortunately, we have to do it via Zoom, but um, this works as well. Um, so if everyone can sort of virtually clap their hands. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's been my pleasure. Thanks so much yeah. for inviting me and really great questions. So thank you again, um, and I hope to see you. Uh, yeah, we need to do something else, Todd. We haven't done something recently. That's right. A new project. <laughs> All right. Okay, we have one, potentially. That's true. That's true. <laughs> All right. Thank you, everyone. Um, and thank